Visually and visually, one of my favorite topics to discuss, one of the most defining issues in my career. So hoping you guys have a lot of great questions because we've got some good stuff, I think, lined up. Pretty complex stuff developing. Um, let me go ahead and get going. I think the hour has about arrived. Let's see, 5.30. Yep, 5.30 is upon us. Guys, let's do this. If you can, um, please share the fact that we're having this conversation on whatever social media applications that you guys have. Let's try and get this audience built up a little bit. Always have great questions. I already see some regulars in the audience. Looking forward to tonight's discussion where we're going to be talking about the politics of immigration reform. Um, welcome again to Colin here, uh, 5.30 p.m. Pacific, 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Uh, whatever time zones are in between, welcome everybody. Um, love this opportunity once a week to kind of meet and gather with the family and have everybody here to discuss the topics of the day. I chose this one because um, I, it hasn't really burst onto the scene yet. Some of the internal discussions we're going to be talking about in both the Republican caucus and the Democratic caucus, but the developments uh, in uh, with the border town situation with the four Americans, um, one of them, of course, a couple of them, I think, unfortunately being killed, one injured, one um, okay, but recovered, uh, really dramatically heightened, I think, the dynamics that are going to be driving some of this. So um, what's important is that we talk about uh, the context, the 30,000-foot context of what immigration reform is and what it means and why it's so hard to get done under normal circumstances, talk about why it's bubbling up at the moment, and then we're going to talk about uh, the challenges each caucus and conflict faces, and then I'll make my usual prognostication on immigration reform. But the quick um, heads up here. Um, I, I like to think that I'm, I'm pretty accurate on a lot of things politically. I am never accurate, ever. I've never been accurate or I've never been right on the prospects for immigration uh, reform. I think there's probably been four times since 1986 when I really felt that we were going to be able to get something done. And that has never happened. Um, I'm optimistic, but um, I've also old enough and battle scarred enough to know that uh, there's really probably not a whole lot of reason for optimism. I just still at this age, after having done this for 30 plus years, uh, sometimes when you can so clearly see the political road to success doesn't mean that the politicians are going to take it. And there's probably no issue, no issue where that is more clear and more evident than immigration, immigration reform. So quick background as we get going. And again, the queue is open. So if anybody wants to jump up and start uh, adding to the discussion as we go, you know how we do it here on Mic Drop. I want to hear from you guys and start helping me guide the discussion on where we need to go on this very, very uh, visceral, emotionally explosive topic. It's, it's, it is by far the most explosive political topic, including abortion, by the way, um, that I have ever dealt with. It's, it's so foundational to any country's sense of itself uh, uh, the United States of America uh, has a unique situation because we have so many migrants and have over the years. And the reasons for migration are so different that the immigration um, issues that we as Americans uh, here in the U.S. of A. deal with are, are very unique. Um, and, and there's a reason why we're only able to get a comprehensive immigration plan done once every generation or so if we're lucky. The last two major ones were, were back in 1986 uh, with the Immigration Reform and Control Act uh, signed by Ronald Reagan, led in large part by um, Republicans from the Southwest, 
And then prior to that was 1964 under Lyndon Johnson, which was really a truly revolutionary um, uh, immigration reform package, Immigration Reform Control uh, Act, I think in 1964, the same year he signed the Civil Rights Bill, uh, really redefined and dramatically, dramatically expanded the number of migrants that we uh, accepted from countries outside of Western Europe. A lot of the really transformational uh, ethnic and demographic changes that began to happen after the mid-60s are really directly correlate to what changes we made in our immigration laws uh, in the mid-1960s under, under Lyndon Johnson. Prior to that, uh, almost entirely our immigrant uh, laws were focused almost exclusively on Europe, Eastern and Western Europe. Uh, we were by design allowing, uh, we were choosing to be a white country, a white European descendant country. Um, you know, there, there were people from uh, the Pacific Rim coming in, uh, China specifically, California, ugly history in California with the Chinese Exclusion Act laws, some of the most recent, racist, virulent legislation ever passed in the history of this country directly uh, challenging uh, the Chinese specifically uh, to, to not to, to be excluded in this country. So um, th this is not new for us. This is a, this is a, the nativism, the racism, the whites only messaging, the anti-Asian, anti-Latino, anti-black. Uh, this is all, this is, there's, this is nothing new. And I don't mean to diminish it. I mean to say there are lessons that we are still not learning as an American people uh, about some of the stuff that we were doing uh, wrong, I would suggest, throughout the course of our history, we are still very, very deeply stuck in the quagmire. I think that um, if we get this deal done in the next five, six, eight years, um, it will be fascinating to, to fast forward 30 years. I, I won't see it, but the next time we do it, it will be fascinating to see what, what the American um, people tolerate and will be looking for as we are increasingly, as you've heard me say, over many months and years now, a non-white nation. Are we going to be more respectful of non-white people, non-white origin countries, or are we gonna continue down the path that the last 250 years of our country has, has defined us by? But I, I do want to say that whenever an immigration package is debated in the halls of Congress, it is truly, genuinely a debate about who we as an American people are going to be uh, racially and ethnically, religiously, economically, the debate between H-1B visas and those that are unskilled labor. That's going to be a big point of contention that's coming up. I'll try and explore that a little bit. Um, the, the quota system that we, we essentially have from how many people from which country can come in um, is is a fascinating debate because it literally is trying to trying to be prescriptive on who we're going to be, and that's not easy. It's not easy for individuals. It's not easy for families. It's not easy for states. It's certainly not easy for countries under any circumstances. And the mythology of America, this idea that we are we're we're, we're unique because we're an idea, really gets put to the challenge. And I've, I've, I've really changed my own perceptions of that mythology over the course of my life, but certainly my professional career, as I've really watched this tension between the ideals that we purport to be as a people and the actual 
actions we take as human beings, which you know are, are simply not much different, if at all, from every other country in the world, right? We want to believe that this is an America where anybody can come, anybody can be an American. We all know the stories. The truth of the matter is um, we work really, really hard to limit who comes here. We work really, really hard to be prescriptive in essentially allowing people who look like us, think like us, worship like us, behave like us to promulgate this American experiment. We work really hard at it, and we always have, and it really does fly in the face of what I think the, the, this idea of America and Americanness is. But again, that's that clashing of both the mythology of who we purport to be, who we say we are, and then the actions we take on who we actually are. They're, they're very much in conflict and they always have been. Uh, that's why the 64 Act was so profound, um, but I don't wanna to spend too much time on the 64 Act. If you look at the 1986 Act, um, Simpson-Mazzoli was a bill that had been working its way through Congress for a number of years. Senator Alan Simpson and, and Senator Mazzoli developed sort of the, 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 um, the recipe for who we were going to allow in contained one very significant piece of, of, uh, of a component of that legislation, which was, which was amnesty, uh, which is now, let's, let's, let's be mindful of what happened here. Okay. At the 30,000 foot level, in 1986, in the mid-80s, at the heights of the conservative, modern conservative movement with Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan signs a bill led and shepherded in large part, not just by Simpson and Mazzoli, but a governor by the name of Pete Wilson in California and a congressman by the name of Dan Lundgren from Long Beach. Californians very much engaged in putting together a package that would grant amnesty to millions, millions of people from Latin America largely Mexico specifically, okay, that had tremendous impacts on the future demographic change of the country. And, and um, Simpson-Mazzoli and the Immigration Reform and Control Act was the last time I think that Republicans could actually uh, utter the words amnesty. In fact, it's become such a bad word in Republican politics that they will use that label very liberally in the descriptive sense I'm talking about, to, to claim that things are amnesty, right? Even though they're clearly not, it's not, not legally or, 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 or uh, the, uh, or descriptively accurate. They're just, they're just foundationally not immigrant. They're not, they're not amnesty, but because that word is so loaded and because a Republican base voter hates it so much that the best way to tear down or move people off of amnesty is by use uh, or off of an immigration package is to use the word amnesty, which takes me to the last time this was a tried by Republicans. And that was with the gang of eight proposal. Okay. Gang of eight proposal uh, was floated and led by a young then freshman Senator from Florida by the name of Marco Rubio, who not long prior to that, had been graced on the cover of Time magazine as sort of the future of the Republican Party. He was a non-white senator who was engaging and leaning into the immigration debate, and it was really the last vestiges of a time and era when a senator, a U.S. A Republican U.S. senator, would actually take on this issue uh, as something that could be prescriptive, that could be a good policy solution, 
and and erroneously believed to be good politics for a Republican senator. Rubio picks up the mantle, curiously, by the way, as a Cuban-American. And let me explain why, okay? Help me get back to the, to the Rubio thing first and foremost. But the Cuban-Americans, ever since the height of the Cold War, have had a special and unique place, not just as immigrants, but as Latinos as well, in the whole vernacular of Latino politics and or Hispanic politics. Those Cubans that first came here, the very first emigres, a lot of those people that lost uh, power, that lost land, that lost wealth with Castro's takeover of the Bautista regime, were very wealthy, were very educated, and were very advanced socially, which is why, in large part, a lot of why they were leaving the, uh, regretted leaving the island and hated Castro so much. These were not poor, despondent people who left Cuba for a better life. They had a great life in Cuba. They had all their stuff taken from them, seized, and then pushed off of the island and forced to flee because they were going to lose all of their wealth or all of their lives. That begins this debate and discussion about uh, communism in our own hemisphere, the Cuban Missile Crisis. But, but literally every 10 or 12 years since that time, there's usually been a Cuban sort of exception to our immigration laws. And it's it, the, the, the truth of the matter is it's extraordinarily unfair. The, the Cuban Americans have always gotten a pass to allow more Cuban Americans to come because of the politics of really a relic of the Cold War. They were fleeing communism. It was viewed as uh, an embarrassment to Castro and the Castro regime. There were a lot of people in the Cuban uh, diaspora in South Florida who became a strong contingent of the emerging Republican Party in both Florida and nationally. The fact that Florida would become a pivotal swing state in the 70s, 80s, and 90s leveraged and enhanced that position. The wet foot, dry foot policy was advanced in the mid-1990s. Uh, that continues to this day, as we're seeing in the last couple of months, a large number of Cubans coming by raft again, and this reopening and rediscussion of wet foot, dry foot, that again allows Cubans to come here in a much, much, much more permissive way to be accepted here in the United States than any other group, any other group, not just Latinos, any other group in the country, in the world, okay? Ironically and, and disappointingly, and this does make me angry, and I'm going to talk about this in my book a little bit, Cuban-Americans, when polled, tend to be some of the most anti-immigrant folks uh, in the country, not just amongst the Latinos. They are definitely the most anti-immigrant Latino subgroup of any, but they're also oftentimes the most anti-immigrant of all Americans, even though they have gotten every exception under the book for the last 30 or 40 years. Okay, very anti-Mexican, very anti-immigrant, uh, largely, um, but have gotten exceptions. Almost every Cuban-American whose family has been here for two, three generations or less had their family get here through an exception, like 99% of them, okay, a carve-out for the Cubans. And so when Ron DeSantis, you know, addresses or forwards all of this really anti-immigrant language, the Cubans are eating that up. These Cuban voters really, they, they really eat this stuff up. Okay. So I'm going to take the Cuban diaspora out of this as much as I can, 
but it's why I brought up Marco Rubio is when he decided to lead on this, he was clearly positioning for a presidential run. Okay, this is going back, I think, probably 10 or 12 years now, uh, certainly before the Trump era. Um, and, and Rubio decides to lead this with eight members. It was came, became known as the Gang of Eight. And the Gang of Eight essentially comes up with, with a policy framework that looks like this. It starts with border security. Okay, and th this is very important. Uh, and, and Democrats, progressives really need to listen to this. There will not ever be a deal on immigration reform that does not begin a discussion on border security. And my strong opinion is that is as it should be, okay? There's nothing racist about starting and talking about border security. Having border security is central to any sovereign nation, okay? There's nothing wrong with it. Now, the way it's talked about and some of the really draconian proposals that are put forward, that can be egregious. That is egregious in many instances. That is over the top. And we're going to get to Congressman Tony Gonzalez Republican congressman in Brownsville, Texas, largest border district, I think, in the country. We're going to talk about that in just a second because he's running into some of these problems. It's not just that it's border security. It's the type of border security, right? This is Donald Trump was, when he couldn't get his wall built, he started talking about moats. Remember that? Or can he just shoot them below, below the kneecap? Remember that stuff that he was saying? Like, the, the thing about this issue is, is, is it's not that... It, it, it's it's appropriate and, 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 and responsible to talk about enhanced border security. But we most people know where you're coming from when you're talking about it. There's nobody in this country, I think, who genuinely believes that Donald Trump was coming from a place of good spirit and good heart uh, when he was talking about immigration. Okay. He just he just wasn't. And I would I would submit the vast majority of Republicans now. Are, are similarly ill-hearted when talking about this issue. And I say that as somebody who's been involved in Republican politics on this issue, and I will say that's very different than what we were seeing in the year 2000 with George W. Bush, for example, who in all likelihood would have gotten uh, the next most significant immigration reform package done if it weren't for 9-11, and then it became untenable. We don't talk enough about how much the country changed after 9-11, right? The trauma of it, we remember the buildings, we remember the, the memorials, we remember the heartbreak and the sorrow. We don't really talk about the trauma that, 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 that imposed on the nation and how that made us much more isolationist, much more nativist, much more protectionist, and much more just, you know, afraid of the world. That attack, I think, still, we have not come to terms with it or even had a healthy discussion about what that means. So, Rubio starts with the Gang of Eight with border security. Then there's a pathway to citizenship piece. And the pathway to citizenship piece is the, is the largest, long-term, the most profound. It's probably the most important, I would suggest, because it determines not just who can come here, what quota systems and what numbers from what parts of the world people can come from, but it literally explains what the process is going to be in a system that is essentially entirely cracked open and broken right now. There's really no reasonable uh, process for becoming a US citizen if you're an immigrant, especially from Latin America, most specifically from Mexico. 
it essentially doesn't exist. There's really no, there, there's, there's sort of different variations of paper and what it means. The truth is everybody knows that it's not going to be followed. Everybody knows the system is too overburdened. You can't just call a lawyer if you're from Mexico and saying, I want to become a U.S. citizen. How do I start the process? People will just laugh at you. It would take so long. It's so backlogged and so broken that if you're a 25-year-old making that phone call, you would not become a U.S. citizen by the time you are 75. It's just it's not going to happen by legal means. Okay, those few examples where it does happen are extremely and extraordinarily rare. They take a combination of probably a ton of money, a ton of resources, and a hell of a lot of luck for things to break in a certain direction. Okay, and compared to the actual need we have for immigration as a tax base and as an economic base, it's ridiculous. The system has been broken for decades. It's now completely, completely unhinged. That's the second piece of what the Gang of Eight proposal had. The third piece spoke to those that have already been here. They now call them dreamers. This was before we even called them dreamers, is what do we do with this cadre of folks that allows them to become citizens? It's one of the most highest polling, highest testing um, issues for all Americans saying grant them citizenship or grant them a really speedy process to get to citizenship because 95% of these people have never been to any other country except for the fact that they were born, they're brought here as, as infants, often don't speak Spanish, don't have any family or what family they have is very far removed and too distant to know anybody and to deport them because they've spent the last 15, 20, 30 years, 40 years of their life here never having stepped foot uh, literally and sometimes in those countries doesn't make sense to, to have them being deported. The problem is once you do that, you, you, you immediately draw the ire, the fire of the, the right-wing extremists saying that's that's amnesty, right? It's amnesty. So those are the three elements. Now, the thing about this Gang of Eight proposal that, was, that, that Rubio advanced, again, border security, pathway, and then granting of those that have been here. That's the framework of what will ultimately happen. Okay, this is what I've been saying for 20 years. I'm not saying it because I'm particularly smart. Everybody who focuses on this knows that those are the three elements you get to what we call comprehensive immigration reform. There have been times when things have gotten close where people will say, let's just do border security, which is what Republicans want to do. Let's just do border security. Let's just build a wall. Let's not fix or create a pathway for anybody else to get here. And if we round up all of these people and throw them out, even though they've never been to their countries of origin, that's just fine with me, right? That's the Marjorie Taylor Greene, Kevin McCarthy now, who's changed considerably since I worked with him as a young man here in California, in Bakersfield, in an agricultural community. Entirely different rhetoric coming out of his mouth now than many of the conversations I had with him over the years. Okay, so these, the, the, that, that is the Republican, you know, plan for. Uh, immigration reform. Build a wall, put barbed wire on it, dig a moat, fill it with alligators, shoot people who are coming across below the knee, and electrify that fence, and the border problem is solved. Okay? Obviously absurd, ridiculous, but that's another topic from the Dana State of the Republican Party. Democrats. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Democrats have responded to that, the Republican overplaying their hands, by literally not putting forward a proposal at all. And the reasons for this are important to understand, okay? The reasons why is the Democrats would have a problem on, in two ways from two key constituencies from their left flank. The first is the fear of Latinos themselves. 
is by acknowledging somehow that border security is part of the problem, their fear is we're going to lose the overwhelming support we get from this, this significant voter base. Okay, that's the Democratic Party's mentality. The second, really, and this is going to get really fascinating, folks, is white progressives who care more about border issues than, than, than immigrants themselves, right? These, the white progressive is just so, the guilt of the white progressive is so onerous that they're so hypersensitive to these quote-unquote racial issues that I sometimes think they lose the capacity to develop sound policy based off of what is obviously happening and not happening in front of them. That, of course, is my own editorializing, but I'll be damned if I haven't seen that played out constantly over the past 25, 30 years in California, okay? There's nothing wrong with implementing border security and even a somewhat restrictive, depending on how you define restrictive, um, um, pathway to citizenship, okay? There's nothing wrong with that, but the Democrats have, have believed for good reason to this point, and I'm going to explain why that's changed in just a second, that this was good politics for them. And this is, if you take away nothing from this talk, understand this. Both parties have benefited politically from a broken system. The Democrats will blame the Republicans all day long. The Republicans will blame the Democrats all day long. The truth of the matter is they have both benefited politically from it, which is why they won't fix it why it has not been fixed. Here's the problem. The Democrats are starting to get marginal results from the 25, 30 year strategy that they've employed. That is, if we just call the Republicans racists, which I'm not saying that's not accurate. I'm not saying that ain't true, right? But if we just rely on that, we can anger and scare enough Latinos to keep them in our fold and have them turn out in numbers high enough to create a new, larger voting block and help us win elections over time. That is absolutely a concerted strategy, okay? Anybody who says it's not is a liar. And I wanna have them on the show to debate it. Nobody has seen this more than I have election cycle, election by election cycle in the places where it was happening the most since the mid 1990s up until current day in the Southwestern United States. That is 95% of what Democrats have run campaigns on during my entire career is running on anti-Republicanism related to immigration. Just that is what they run on to mobilize their base. Here's the problem. It's not working anymore. It's not working anymore. And the reason why is over the last 10 years, immigration slowed dramatically. And as immigration slowed dramatically, the growth in the Latino electorate were from second and third generation voters who were not motivated as much or at all in many instances by the immigration debate, by the immigration issue. So you're continuing to call Republicans racists may be accurate, but I'm a lot more concerned about the economy and jobs and healthcare and education before immigration gets to any point where that's gonna serve as a motivator for me. You follow? That's what's going on. So the Hispanic rightward shift that happens in 2020 and continues in 2022 is happening in Hispanic communities all across the country, but most profoundly where? The Rio Grande Valley, Southern New Mexico, border districts where Hispanics are saying the border is out of control. I don't feel safe. 
a lot of these Hispanics, Hispanic Democrats, incidentally, work in Border Patrol uh, capacities, official capacities. And that's where you're seeing this really significant rightward shifts. So the Democrats are starting to get marginal returns. And two things are happening that are really exacerbating the issue for the Biden administration. The first is this most recent issue, and trust me, this is going to get bigger before it gets smaller. These four people, African Americans, who crossed the border for elective surgery and were attacked by a cartel, as the story stands. I don't know what this story is. I don't know. I don't know what the, the details are of it. I don't know what the facts are. But what I tell will tell you is this: what we have heard is not the whole story. I guarantee you that. Okay. And the other thing I'm going to tell you about it is both sides are going to start playing football with it. Okay. This car, presumably of Americans driving to get elective surgery in Mexico, is very, very commonplace. This happens a lot. Okay. If you're not from a, a, a border state, you don't realize how commonplace this is. But these Americans were black Americans. And I will tell you, I will tell you what, if these were white Americans, this would be the top news story throughout the entire country on every media channel, 24 seven on Fox News, just going absolutely nuts saying what the hell was going on. If they were blonde and blue eyed, especially, you know, Hannity and Tucker's and Laura Ingram's head would have exploded already. Okay, but that hasn't happened. Okay, but this is going to raise a whole lot of questions about race, about class, about healthcare, about cartels, about drug movements, and there's going to be a lot more information coming out on this. But what I will say is this the more information that is focused on this issue and on this topic, the more it helps Republicans. Because what they're going to simply say, and it's the right answer for everything that comes out, right or wrong, fake news or not is if we had a tighter border security and if these cartels, like Donald Trump told us, they're drug dealers and rapists coming across the border, that's who these people are because they're brown people, right? These are bad hombres, right? Remember that, those famous words? That's what is in the minds of the average Republican voter who's been fed this steady diet of this shit for the past eight years, okay? It doesn't take much of a match to be thrown onto the gas to have this thing lit up. That's coming on just this issue. But the second is the Title 42 stuff. And if you're not well-versed in immigration reform, basically what happened was Title 42 in the Immigration Reform and Control Act allows the President of the United States to limit people coming from specific countries in times of national emergency and specifically pandemic okay so this was envisioned by the crafters of the previous legislation 30 40 years ago is if there is a disease or an outbreak of something the president of the united states has the unilateral ability to say nobody can come from whatever country this is where this is happening and where this is a problem what donald trump did at the device and direction of stephen miller his very nativist white supremacist anti-immigrant advisor on these issues did and said was why don't we use this expansively all over the world to just kind of shut down the immigration system? And it was a pretty evil genius thing to do, and that is what they did. They invoked Title 42. 
That creates another dilemma for the Biden administration, because just a couple of weeks ago, Biden says COVID is essentially over, emergencies over. And unless we can demonstrably prove that these COVID numbers are happening from these countries in a way that affects national security, which we can't do anymore, there's really no role for Title 42 to be imposed or enacted. So that goes away. Well, what happens when 42 goes away is you're going to see this flood of new asylum seeking uh, behavior start to happen. And those numbers, those surges have already begun. Okay. Now Biden's got a real problem. Biden's real problem is the only way to stem this tide is to send a message at the border that we're not going to accept people for asylum. We're not accepting the 42 uh, uh, back door, if you will, when this uh, uh, changes that we're going to clamp down on the border. And by doing that, you send a message really throughout all of Latin America, where a lot of this immigration comes from. Incidentally, this is very important to understand. It's not just Latin Americans coming in through Latin America. There's a huge, huge number of Russians coming in now. People who have fled Russia because of the war, because they're anti-Putin, trying to get the hell out of Russia. Hundreds of thousands of people have come. They're trying to get into the United States quick because there's nowhere else to go. And so what they do is they go into Mexico or they go into Latin America and are literally part of these caravans and now camped out on the border along San Diego, along the Rio Grande, along Brownsville are a bunch of Russians. Okay, this is this is happening. Look it up. Don't take my word for it. Now, and it's not just Russians. It's people, it's Venezuelans. It's people fleeing their country, oftentimes legitimately for political reasons, oftentimes for, out of economic distress. So it's not just a bunch of Mexicans, right, which is what the common vernacular in the media narrative is. It's not. In fact, it's not. I don't want to say it's not most. It may or may not be most. But I'm not talking about small margins. I'm talking about very significant numbers of very diverse people sitting on the border trying to get in. They're trying to get in through illegal means if they have to. They'll wait for the asylum process. But if there is no asylum process, what are you going to do? Live with your family and camp in a dirt ditch? Or are you going to take your chances trying to sneak into the border and integrate quietly into the broader American society? 95% of people on that border wall, on that border line, are going to try at some point to get through and get into the country and integrate into the fabric of the country. Okay? So that's what's going on. So Biden floats a policy proposal in just in the last 48 hours, basically saying, it's going to maybe bother some people, but it ain't Mike Madrid saying it, it's Joe Biden saying it. They're essentially going to revert back to the Trump era policy proposals on family detention. Okay. Now they can wordsmith a little bit and change some comments here and there and pretend like they're doing something a little bit different on the policy here and there. But 99% of it, 95% of it anyway, it's the same damn framework. It's the same policies what Donald Trump was saying. Let me drive this home to you even a little bit more, if you don't believe me. Do you remember before Donald Trump when Obama was called the deporter in chief? Why? Because Barack Obama had the most restrictive immigration policy of any president, in fact, of all the presidents in the history of the country combined. Combined. Okay? And a lot of these policies of family separations did not begin under Donald Trump, folks. They began under President Barack Obama. Them's the facts. Okay? 
So when you dig into your partisan holes and say Democrats are the good people looking out for blah, 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 they were enacting not only the same policies, they started these policies. It's just when Republicans started advancing them, and I'm not saying they're right. They were wrong when, 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 when Barack Hussein Obama was doing it. Yeah, I said that intentionally. And they're wrong when Donald Trump does it. These are, those are bad policies for human beings. They just are. Okay? I don't care if you're Republican. I don't care if you're Democrat. If you're doing something bad, you ought to be called out on it. And both parties have been playing football with this at the risk of human lives for a very long time. So if I'm bursting any of your bubbles, good. Because you need to start paying attention to this. Because if you think that the Democrats are altruistic just because they're Democrats, they're not. They're not. Any more than the Republicans are because the Republicans certainly are not. Okay? And on this issue specifically, I have been, I have the scars to, to, to prove this, to talk with this, the conversations I've had over 30 years. There is no party that is more righteous than the other. Republicans are certainly, there's a hell of a lot of ugly element in there. But if the Democrats wanted to fix this, there are at least two times when this could have been fixed. 2008, 2009, with Barack Obama, had majorities in both houses of the Congress. Uh, and he was the President of the United States. More recently, it could have been done under Joe Biden in the 2020-2021 year cycle. It chose not to do it. Got a hell of a lot of other legislation accomplished, which he is clearly proud of. Last year, doesn't get immigration's not on that list. And I'll tell you why he probably didn't do it. But the main reason is because they want this issue too. The Democrats want this problem to exist. If they didn't, they could have fixed it. Go back to the 90s and Bill Clinton, the Bill Clinton era, 1992, 1993. Okay, all Democrats, Democrat president, why big majorities, by the way, in 92, 93. Why didn't they get it done then? Okay, there's a pattern here. Okay, so not picking on Obama, not picking on Biden, not picking on Clinton, picking on everybody because George W. Bush can and should have done it. Donald Trump, of course, was never going to do it. My I think you're seeing the, the point that I'm making here is there has been political expedience for both parties in not fixing the system. And now it's become a crisis. The difference of what is happening here is there's a leakage of Latino and Hispanic voters towards the Republican Party on this issue. And the, that leaves Biden and the Democrats with a really big conundrum because they have fed their base so much of this stuff and not taken a position on any of it, relying exclusively on Republicans overplaying their hand that it has worked. It's, it's worked politically. They've, they've gotten the numbers that they needed to. I'm not saying it was a bad political strategy. It's a bad human strategy for sure. But is it a bad political strategy? No, it's probably pretty ingenious. But what happens when you start losing Hispanic voters? What happens when there's less immigrants in this demographic and more second and third generation voters that aren't motivated by your rhetoric on this anymore? and aren't as anti-Republican, especially in border communities. What happens when you start losing Hispanics in the Rio Grande Valley? What happens when you start losing them in New Mexico too? What happens when you start losing them all along the border? You've got a problem as a party. And the only solution at some point is gonna have to be a Democrat's gonna have to bring some policy proposals to the table.
They haven't really done that. Now, I was called on this by Chuck Rocha, my good friend. I know a lot of you guys listen to the Latino Book Podcast, and you should, because Chuck and I get into a really, really fantastic conversation on just this topic. This, this next episode will be coming out in the next couple of days. Tune into it, because it's really, really good. You get a real good perspective on what a Republican thinks about this and a Democrat thinks about this. It's a phenomenal conversation. But my point is the Democrats, from my estimation, are going to have to get serious about this and put some specific policy proposals on the table. Now, that's going to cause a, a crazed reaction from the left. In fact, a good friend of mine, reporter from Newsweek, Adrian Carrasquillo, you should all look this up, last day or two, maybe our moderator can put it up and put the link in the chat, wrote an article about Julian Castro uh, criticizing the Biden White House for going back to Trump-era policies. Not just Mike Madrid saying it. It's not just this Republican guy with the Lincoln painting behind him. This is Julian Castro, who's on the progressive left wing of the Democratic Party. Okay? And he took the president to task, like took him out to the shed and gave him a whooping and said, I'm going to here, be here to hold you accountable. Now, politically, you have to understand that's exactly what the Biden White House wanted. Okay? Because these guys are smart. These are smart political operators. To get to an immigration deal, and I, I believe the Biden people want to get, there's the article right there in the, the link. Okay? If you don't, don't take my word for it, Julian Castro left wing of the Democratic Party, calls him out, calls Joe Biden out and says, look, man, you want to go to war? This is war. You're going to go back to Trump-era policies? I'm going to say it, and we're going to fight about this. This is good politics for Biden. Because in order to get to a deal on something this significant and this profound, both sides are going to have to tell their base to go pound sand. Not entirely, but they're going to have to say, you're not getting what you want. And if you read the article... What you're going to realize is that this was floated with what we call a trial balloon. Somebody leaked this anonymously from the Biden White House saying the administration is considering this. They leak the proposal, and then the reporter does a good job of going to get the response from the right people who attack him, attack the president, and that cements Biden in the middle where most of the public is at. Okay? That's how you get to a deal in Washington, is the extremes on both sides. At least that's how you used to. Because this is going to get really problematic on the Republican side, especially with what just happened with the four Americans, two getting killed by these drug cartels. It gets really complicated because Republicans already believe that this is going to be a winning issue for them. Now, look, there have been years in my, my career where I have seen this issue work phenomenally for Republicans. Okay, 1994 was a huge one, part of the Republican Revolution. The immigration issue swept up so many seats in California in the mid-1990s that a Republican became the leader of the California State Assembly. It brought Pete Wilson from being 27 points down in the primary to Kathleen Brown, Jerry Brown's sister, running for governor in this re-election, to winning by 17 points. Let me say that again. He was down 27 points in February of 1994. By November, he won by 17 points. That's how powerful this issue is, okay? And don't think Kevin McCarthy doesn't know that. Kevin McCarthy was just a couple years older than I am. We were young operatives, you know, running campaigns in the same environment in the same year. 
He knows the power, the explosive power of this issue. But I've also seen this issue fall completely flat when Republicans overplay their hand. 2018. Remember Fox News was talking about the caravans coming and Donald Trump was still doing the build the wall chance? Completely, completely falls flat. 1996, Bob Dole comes out and starts trying to pick up votes in the Southwest by hammering home on this just two years after Pete Wilson's resurrection. 1996 tells you how old I am because I remember doing this races, right? 1996, Bob Dole gets his ass kicked by Bill Clinton, who triangulates, by the way. Bill Clinton starts to come to the center on law and order issues. It's criticized. Hillary Clinton's criticized it mightily for it afterwards. But the truth of the matter is he was dead on with public opinion polling with the issue at that moment in time. And that's where Biden is at. So in order to get to a deal, you're going to have to, the Democrats are going to have to, one, get more specific, which they are. They're trial balloons right now. And two, they're going to have to tell their base, especially Latino groups, they're going to have to pound sand on this or at least do a good job of shilling for me when we're not giving you, you're going to get 10% or 15% of what you want. Okay? The question, the only question remains, what are the Republicans going to do and do they want to get to a deal? The immediate reaction is no. Okay? Because they're Republicans and they don't care about this stuff and they don't like it. And two, they see this as a political winner heading into a presidential election cycle. I tend to think at this moment in time that they're right. But you don't need that many votes to get something out of the House. Let's remember that. And one of those is Republican congressman by the name of Tony Gonzalez. Tony represents the border community, essentially in the Rio Grande Valley, into Uvalde. Represents Uvalde, represents Brownsville. All of this is border community. And he did something, I think, quite exceptional. And that is he told, um, I don't remember the congressman's name from Texas who floated a real draconian proposal on immigration reform. There's no way I'm going to support that. I will support a moderate, reasonable approach to immigration. I'm not going to support your anti-immigrant bullshit. I'm not going to support your white nativist bullshit. We're going to do something big. We're going to do something serious. He was criticized as being somebody who was too moderate. What happened to him was just in the last couple of days, he was censured by the Texas Republican Party. Chip Roy, thank you. Well, thank you so much. There is Chip Roy in the chat. Mike, Mike, you guys are so good. This is like teaching graduate level stuff. And you guys are just on this stuff. If anybody can find that story, I think it's in Texas Monthly of what happens to Tony Gonzalez, throw that um, link in there too, um, as he was censured by the Texas Republican Party. Now, t Tony also supports same-sex marriage. And he also supports, again, represents Uvalde, supports some reasonable gun control measures. These are non-starters, not only in Texas, but pretty much in any Republican Party in any state at this point. So he's kind of poking the bear a little bit, which I freaking love about the guy, right? He's saying, no, 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 bullshit. We're going to start getting into the modern era, and it doesn't take too many of me. I will take the standard. I will lead that fight, and I will put together five, six, seven votes to get these things out of the House. There you go. The best moderator in the world there. Texas Tribune. Take a look at that story when you get a moment too on what is happening. Because this internecine warfare, as I said in the description, is not just happening in the Democratic Party. It's happening in the Republican Party too. Now remember, the House Republican Conference is more diverse than it's ever been. I'm not saying it's truly diverse in a meaningful way. But math is dictating that there's an ethnic and racial change that's happening even in the Republican Conference. It is happening. One thing to watch for in this debate is what is going to happen with Latino Republicans specifically. Are they going to lean more into their Latino-ness in districts like 
Tony's, Congressman uh, Gutierrez, who's going to uh, represent that district well, because the truth of the matter is on those issues, he's with the majority of the people in his district. He may not represent the Republican primary very well, and he's already drawn a Republican challenge. He may lose that district in the primary, but he's a much better fit in a general election, the general election candidate, because that's where the voters of that district are on all three of those issues. Okay, important just to remember. But the broader point is it's not just a battle happening in the Democratic primary, it's a battle happening in the Republican primary too. There are competing tensions and competing factions in both caucuses because the politics are changing. And the biggest reason for the change is the shift of Hispanic voters to the right. It's causing a conundrum on the left and it's causing a conundrum on the right. And how the Republicans deal with that is going to be extraordinary because if 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 Cong the congressman can put together five, six, eight, 10, 15 votes on a comprehensive immigration reform package, I think that there's a very good chance that the, the Republicans could put numbers up in the 40% range against Joe Biden in the reelect, which is, I don't want to say it's unheard of because I did the George W. Bush campaigns of 2000-2004, tell you how old I am, where we hit 44% in 2004. What was that, 18, 18 years ago? So we, we've hit those numbers before, okay? It's not unprecedented, but I always remind Republicans, you know, because there's this whole chatter now about saying, oh, Hispanics are moving right while, we're, while we are also moving to the right on immigration. It's true, but you're hitting, what, 37%. Reagan got 40%. George W. hit 44%. I already told you that Reagan supported amnesty. George W. Bush was probably the most pro-immigrant, pro-Mexican Republican in the history of the country. The two most pro-immigrant, pro-Mexico Republican presidents in our history got the highest vote levels of Hispanic voters. So you don't tell me that Donald Trump is in that range because even though he is, he did move up off of his low of 30, 32% and hits 37%. He's not breaking, he's not, didn't crack into the 40s. Could he? I think he could. I think he could. Could DeSantis? I think he could. It really depends on what the Democrats do to take this issue off the table. And Biden right now is making the right moves, but it's going to come at the expense of lighting his own party's hair on fire because there's no way Latino activists who have made their entire identity, their entire career, and all their money backing these very progressive immigration proposals, they're not going to let them back off on this. They just won't. So I think that the prospects of a potential deal do remain. I think that they are there, but I don't think that it's terribly likely as we get closer to the presidential campaign itself and as issues like what we just saw with this unfortunate shooting and cartel violence happening on the border. You're just going to see exactly what we saw post 9-11, which is a retrenchment of the American public saying, just build the damn wall, get archers on that wall, put crocodiles in that moat, electrify the fence, and let's just keep everybody else the hell out. So, guys, jump into the queue, ask me some questions. I'm losing my voice. That was a much longer rant than I thought. But that's what I've got for the moment. Um, we're already running up on almost an hour, man. That was a good 50, 
50 minute rant. So I apologize for going on so long, but look, I mean, this, this issue is truly is one issue that, um, I mean, I could talk about it for days, uh, and the experiences of it. And like I said, there's a reason why I'm overly optimistic and always have been, and I've always been wrong. Like I pride myself, got a little bit of ego here. got pretty good at this politics thing. I've never been right on this issue ever, because as I, as I explained, the framework for the deal is already there. It's been there for 30 years. It just takes a matter of the parties having to move out of their silos and realizing there's a gain to be had by the system being fixed more than the gain of the system being broken. Peter, you're in the queue, brother. Give me a question. Hey, Mike. Uh, well, it's a little bit of a long question because this thing's never asked before. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I'm an immigrant myself. Where are you and, from? Uh, uh, China. China. Welcome. Thank you. So... I have a, I'm aware of this fact that the anti-immigrant forces, usually they will say these immigrants are economic immigrants because yeah. they don't, right? And all that. So I kind of, a, I had a bought into this theory uh, in the past. Really until recently, I was thinking maybe there should be a connection between the politics of immigration reform and the geopolitics of what we do. So you talk about a Latino American, including the Latino politicians, even the Republican politicians of a Latino heritage is uh, kind of uh, having their own independent view on the immigration reform. So my thing is this, it seems to me, given that these immigrants are coming here for economic reasons. But isn't true that our geopolitical politics towards Latin America has always been interfering with their government, interfering with their economy, exploiting the local resources? Basically, we do not respect their border. Remember Trump said, we must have the border, otherwise we are not a country. But those countries who are wronged by the America's geopolitical policies, Democrats and Republicans alike, they suffered from our geopolitical policy. Therefore, it's our policy. We not respecting other countries' border, get involved with their, picking their, uh, the head of the state for them. Is that right? All that. It's it's a hundred percent right. I changed my thought process and I said, look, yeah, okay. Given that it is, it, these are economic immigrants. Are we the one who caused those e people economic hardship by not respecting their border? Therefore, they are not expecting respecting our border. So I'm hoping the discussion about the politics of immigration, saying let's set aside. One hundred million dollars for settlement uh, for settling in those uh, immigrants uh, migrants into America. For each billion dollars we spend overseas to interfere with other people's lives. Uh, look, I, I, the point is 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 very well taken. I think it's a hundred percent right. A lot of the political instability, especially in Central America, that is being experienced right now, is directly correlates to American interventionism since the since the end of the Cold War since during the Cold War. There's no question. You're absolutely right about that. I would say open the door for the Ukrainian immigrants. It's whoever wants to come from Ukraine, we are welcome. We, we welcome you. Yeah, and there's we a greater welcome. chance because they're white, by the way. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, but I, I'm accused of being always play race card. I'm glad you brought it up. No, so, that's, yeah. that's, 
Look, I mean, it's it's absolutely right. I mean, the the fact look look yeah, let's not go down that road, but that's exactly right. The fact that they're white, the fact that they're Christian, it helps. Um, yep. and, and and so yeah, suddenly there's like, oh well, wait a second. These are you know these aren't brown people. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, this is why I don't bring up my because I know you are a political veteran. I'm not into politics myself. I'm I don't belong to any parties. But this immigration policy, it is a bi-party issue. But I do want to tie the geopolitical disaster of this country to the immigrants that are coming in. There's no question about that. I, I could, I could, yeah, there's no question about that. In fact, one of the things I've always, you know, I used to say this a lot during the Bush administration to, to those that were involved in the policymaking is the best way to solve the immigration problem is to have a Marshall Plan for all of these countries that we interfered in and build these countries there. <laughs> I mean, if, if, yep. if, if we were serious about it, yep. regardless of the skin color of that nation, yeah. we should have a martial plan, right? Eco build those economies, allow for industry to kind of you know exploit their own resources. Let's why don't we quit taking their stuff? Let's make them trade partners instead of satellites, economic satellites, and watch what happens. Yep. Well, what's going to happen is they're going to start building their own middle class. But no, what we'd rather do is exploit those resources, take all their money, create poverty and political instability, and then not allow them in when they're, they've got when they're hungry and they can't feed their kids. Yeah, we bound them into Stone Age. That, yeah. that, that yeah. that's the word. We will bound them into the Stone Age. Yeah, if, so not, if, if, if not militarily, then economically, and we've done both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th thank you, sir. Appreciate it, for Peter. Your questions. Time. Yeah, thank you, sir. Thank you. Kevin, you're next up into the queue. Guys, jump up in there if we've got questions. Go ahead and unmute. You guys, jump up in there if we've got questions. Go ahead and unmute. There you Hi, go. Mike. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. All right. Uh, my question is on a different topic. That's okay. okay. Yeah, no, that's why we're here. Anything. Um, yeah, I was wondering if you have been following the, uh, the revelations about the Fox News host. Mm -hmm. for the Dominion lawsuit, and if there's any surprises there. I don't know that there's any surprises other than the fact that, you know, Murdoch has turned on his own stars of his show. Uh, I'm a little, I was a little bit surprised. I don't know that there's any surprises other than the fact that, you know, Murdoch has turned on his own stars of his show. Uh, I'm a little, I was a little bit surprised by that. I mean, of course, he doesn't have a choice. Um, I, 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 by that, I mean, of course he doesn't have a choice. Um, I, I, I wish that the, um, story was getting more traction amongst, um, other, other, um, I just wish there was a way to break into that bubble a little bit. Look, I'm not under any false illusions that seeing, you know, Tucker Carlson call Sidney Powell an effing whatever he called her. Right. Or, or the fact that they, you know, that that Tucker Carlson hates Donald Trump and wants him to go away. Right. Like these guys were texting this. What, what I'm more interested in is is how um, how we can use the levers of government to start redefining these shows as clearly not news shows and start limiting their access as the White House has begun to, to do, um, because I don't I think it's far too late to break into these bubbles. But there are things that we can do both socially and legally to start limiting the influence and the spread of what Murdoch has done. And I think, I, I honestly, the best way to leverage him and scare the living shit out of them is to start threatening to not allow for foreign ownership of U.S. media companies. 
You do that, you, you start taking his crown jewel away from him, he's going to behave a hell of a lot differently. The reason why Murdoch is behaving the way he is is because he's allowed to do it, <laughs> right? If, if we stopped that, uh, then, then you could stop that. But, I mean, look, I'm not just talking about broadcasts or cable shows. This is really relevant to what's happening with TikTok and, and, and social media channels as well, platforms, right? Platforms and accessing platforms is the way that warfare is going to be waged in the digital age. Let me say that differently. Platforms are the way war is being waged in this digital age. We're in a war. I've been saying that for some time. You guys have heard me say that, right? When, when Russians are interfering with our elections, when the Chinese have the number one platform of people bought into it and it's sucking data out, um, if you think that that is, is an altruistic, you know, <laughs> behavior on behalf of the Chinese, you're absolutely crazy. If you don't think that we're heading towards cyber warfare, you know, crypto warfare, uh, attacks on our monetary uh, exchanges, attack on our financial markets and attacks on, on our private industry infrastructure, I mean, you, you're crazy. It's all coming. It's all, it's all designed as an affront to destabilize democracies, um, that, that's 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 all coming. That's all. It's already here. So um, I'm, I'm I'm sorry about the Mike Madrid windup here on, on the question, but look, um, I'm not surprised at all that any of this happened. I'm glad that it's out there. The question now is, how do we weaponize it? And and when I say that, it's because if the Republicans found this same behavior happening with an MSNBC, for example, uh, I know that, that as political consultants, we would behave very differently than the way Democrats are responding to this. The Democrats sort of believe that like, oh, well, there's the truth and the truth will play itself out. And that may be the case long term, but if we don't act on it and weaponize it and advance it and attack on it and seek to destroy this element, and, I, and I'm saying those words by 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 um, design, Fox News needs to be destroyed. It's a cancer. It's it's literally undermining our democracy and our small d democratic institutions. If that's not going to happen by the federal government alone, there will be some tweaks. There will be some changes. The White House will do some stuff like not allowing them in or giving them press access because they're not a news organization. That's all true. But if you took the power of seventy seven million Americans and use both market forces and social pressure to destroy that, that asset, then I think you begin to see the change and people taking their democracy back and fighting them back. Uh, my business partner um, is doing a lot of research on this. He's, you know, looking back both the William Randolph Hearst and, and Joseph Pulitzer, uh, rivals, they were rivals at the time. Pulitzer, by the way, was not a good dude. I mean, he's done a lot of reputation laundering, like the, you know, the, the old Trump people, you know, who, who left the administration are now like, oh, I'm a, I'm a good, you know, I'm a person who left and I was the adult in the room. Bullshit. If you worked in the Trump administration, you're a bad person. You're, you're just a bad human being. Bottom line, Pulitzer was one of those bad human beings, right? Got this Pulitzer Award now for journalism. This dude was one of the worst yellow journalists of all time. He and Hearst got us into a war that we never should have to steal property from other countries um, and kill uh, civilians in the process of doing it. Like literally that was the aims. So we have seen this before. 
There are ways to take action on this. I'm not surprised by what I'm saying coming out of Fox News. I'm not hopeful that it will be weaponized politically the way that it should be, because I think that we need to. Uh, we need to have the cable companies stop wrapping Fox up into these packages because 90% of people uh, who don't watch Fox News but have cable are paying uh, Fox News. Fox News is making money off of them because it comes in the package. So great deal by Rupert Murdoch. Good for him. But there's going to have to be a lot of lot of leverage uh, exerted on him. And, and frankly, if I were a Democrat in the House, I'd be coming at him as an enemy of the state because that's what he is. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, I've got strong feelings about it. And to be honest, I mean, I asked the question because I've I've only been I've been kind of busy, <laughs> so I've yeah. only seen a few tidbits of what's come out. Uh, you know, the revelations about Tucker and the text communications and stuff. So I was just wondering, you know, if you had seen something in there that stood out. I think, to you. It, look, Brett, Brett Bayer, who's like kind of one of the, one of the people who was the last respected kind of journalist there, uh, looks really bad. It, I mean, so the stuff he was saying was focusing more on ratings. So like the last flickers of journalists, a lot of these guys were journalists before they got these big contracts and then got compromised like everybody else in the GOP establishment. And they're not journalists anymore, right? Brett Bayer was kind of the last sort of journalist after Wallace left. Um, and But the, his, his language basically saying, we're gonna lose viewers if we shift off of this message. You're not a journalist anymore. You're disgraced. And I think what's happening, a lot of stories, I'm, just, I'm looking at one just popped up right now in the Daily Beast. The headline is Fox News journalists sound off on Dominion filings. And the quote is, it's just a really bad time to be working here, said one of the news producers. Because she's not. But a lot of people who produce the show and the professionals that are actually trying to bring something newsworthy and drive news content, all of their reputations are destroyed too. So if you can't work at Fox News, who else is gonna hire you, Newsmax? I mean, Newsmax is gonna be gone too. And I think, it's, I think it's the height of irony that it will be a company that actually does vote counting machines that may bring the Fox empire to its knees. It's not gonna go away but it can be severely, severely damaged. And probably one of the best things that could happen to our democracy at this moment in time is to factionalize the right-wing media even further so that we're dealing with, a, a you know, uh, we're not dealing with one big megaphone anymore. We're dealing with these competing smaller satellite voices. Little fights between like, Mike Lindell doesn't like Steve Bannon and then Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't like whoever. It's like a lot of these is because of the news sources and the blogs and the small market channels that they are trying to dominate. And as long as that's splintered and there's no consolidation, um, it's the best way to keep the enemy sort of at bay. And that's what happens if Fox blows up. There, I don't think there will be a rise of one channel to fill that void unless it's a Trump TV. He could actually do that probably wants to do that, but he's in so much legal trouble. He's got to be president of the United States or he's screwed. Um, there, but I don't think that there will be a, a new Fox News to replace it. There will be like three different channels that we haven't seen before.
Yeah, there's Peg. I saw Steve Bannon call out Murdoch and threaten him. Yeah, these guys are at war with one another. And once Fox News, the big megaphone collapses or splinters, it's going to be just complete. It'll be like a Democratic Party, and then there'll be like eight different strains of Republicanism based largely on personality. And to be able to consolidate that is going to be extremely difficult. I hope that was helpful, Kevin. I don't know if it was. Oh, yeah, it's it's really helpful. Um, do you, in the past, you have mentioned Tucker Carlson's name as someone that, you know, we should be watching carefully and very concerned about. It, does he come out of this damaged? That's a great question. God, that's a great question. I haven't thought about that, but I'm glad that... Uh... have to deal with anymore god i hate that guy um like that's what you know cnn is running that text stream all you know constantly now because you know it, it's saying what we all think it, it does one of two things tucker's got a choice now he can either kind of lean into it or work to undermine it and go against it and what he does is going to be very telling because if he starts to try to ignore and dismiss it it means he knows Trump is stronger than he is. If he starts to lean into some of this stuff, and I don't mean aggressively leaning into um, the lie, he can't. I mean, that's where he's sort of boxed, right? Is I mean, there's only so much he can lean into it because he starts to get into legal jeopardy. But if he does start becoming more anti-Trump, um, the, the victor here is, is Donald Trump ironically, right, is because Murdoch, you know, Murdoch wanted DeSantis. Murdoch wanted to move past Trump. If you have the, if you have the DeSantis megaphone, which is what Fox was trying to become, you have the Fox megaphone splinter or lose cachet, that makes Trump stronger. Now, I, I, I think Trump's got a ceiling, by the way. I think I've shared that. So, when I say stronger, I don't mean he's like he's not he's not moving beyond his current ceiling of a base. What I mean is he's consolidating the anti-Trump. And it's coming apart right now. It's in it's in crisis. It's a good question. All right. Well, someone's going to have to watch Tucker this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. I. I. I, I will. I will keep close. Close tabs on it. Um. I, I don't have cable. I don't watch cable, but I get enough of it on social media to, to be okay with it. But I do think it's a big deal. I mean, look, guys. What I would also say is this: if if what was happening with Matt Schlapp at CPAC was happening to the Democrats, if what was happening to Fox News was happening to MSNBC, you would see the Republican, uh, you know, industrial, military industrial complex just coming unglued and opening up the cannon. And that's what the Democrats should be doing right now. And I don't, I don't for the life of me understand why they're not, but they should be. Um, because that, that you can start putting away a, a presidential campaign right now if you drive up those negatives high enough and then blow up the infrastructure to convey a unified message. 
Like now's the moment. These guys are on on their knees right now, right? So so attack. Don't let up. Don't don't think truth is going to prevail. You know, unsheath the longsword and start hacking at these guys. Go get them. That would be my advice. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for the answer. Appreciate you joining us, uh, Andrew. How are you? How are you doing, bud? Right. Um, do you, you should have had Eric, you maybe should have had um, Eric Cantor as your guest today. Give you some uh, stories about um, you know, getting primary uh, helping out trying to solve immigration reform. Um, do you think you're, that any, you're, you're a little broken up? I can barely hear you. Sorry, mate. Is that better? There you go. Perfect. 100%. Okay. Um, so, um, is immigration reform a test of Trump's hold over the party? Because without his uh, blessing, it ain't going to get done, right? You know, it's a really good question. And um, let me see. With myself, and I've really had to push myself to, to really self-examine the candidates I've worked for, the, the party that I was involved with, the stuff that I was doing. My heart of hearts, I, I think I really underestimated how strong the the racist undertonings of, of the Republican Party that was there. And I'd, I'd like to think that um, there were more people like George W. Bush and Jack Kemp and, um, you know, that, that, that were genuinely trying to build a pluralistic America. And it's easy to, to look back now and say, Mike, you're, you're naive, you're an idiot. How did you not see it? We've seen it all along. Mm -hmm. um, I don't put a whole lot of merit on that unless you were on the inside of it working with, with some of these folks. Or maybe that's delusional. I, I don't know. But, but I do believe that Donald Trump openly leaned into the darker side of human nature when most of the Republican establishment was committed to winning campaigns and, and, and promulgating conservatism through a lens of speaking to the better angels of our nature. I, I believe that. Maybe I'm naive. Um, you, you can criticize me all you want. Um, maybe I'm naive, but I, you know, as somebody who sat in the room with a lot of these people and advised a lot of them and heard their thoughts on it, um, I think my conversations with these folks were very different than uh, what conversations with a Donald Trump were or a Steve Bannon or a Steve Miller. Like those people, we knew they existed in the party, but they were relegated to the dark shadows of conventions. We never took them seriously. They knew we didn't. They, they were the D-level, C-level actors. They were not professionals. They were license to, I think, a lot of deep, dark elements of humanity. So what the question is, is it a test of Trump's 
grip on the party, man, I, I think what I would say is it, that it's hard to say that it wasn't always there. He just gave it license when everybody else prior to him was doing their level best to um, put that type of politics behind the Republican Party. Mm. Well, I, I kind of, I, I, I kind of see it, Mike. That anyone who who you know deviates from that hardcore, hardline position is going to get primaried and kicked out. That's yeah. my, that's my take on it. You know, anyone anyone who shows any weakness in their in their eyes is is gone. Uh, yeah, was there who's that guy? Was it Eric Cantor? Was he the was he the old twenty fourteen? You got primaried out by um by Bannon. Good point. Right. I think you're right. I mean, I think you're right. And I, you can't, you can't, you know, come back and be like, you know, it was a uh, Rick Perry from Texas, right? I mean, I knew the Republican Party was changing. This was before Trump. This was the 2012 primary when he said on stage at a Republican debate, if you are willing to throw out an undocumented kid from Texas, you know, you, you don't have a heart. If you want to kick him out of school. And he was booed. <laughs> it's why Texas always did better with Hispanics than Californians did. Californians had this Pete Wilson model. Texas had his, you know, um, you know, we... George W. Bush ran a Rose Garden strategy. I don't remember this in 2000. Everybody in the state was making a pilgrimage to Austin to sit down with George W. Bush and, and bow to him as the next, you know, uh, president of the United States, right? And, and, and so what he and Carl Rove did is Carl – I want to talk to Carl from, from my book. I, I, um, I, should, I need to reach out to Carl, but Carl did something ingenious. What Carl did was – his re-election, George W.'s re-elect in 1998, he, he didn't have a challenger, a meaningful one, Democrat or Republican. So he ran up the, 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 the Hispanic totals. George Bush, George W. Bush in his re-election in 1998 was in the Rio Grande Valley every damn day of the campaign meeting with Latinos, Hispanics. And he was doing that to, to, to run up the numbers the way DeSantis did in Florida because it, it, it's, it strengthened his hand when running for president two years later. DeSantis tried the same thing. The only problem is he, he ran squarely into Donald Trump, right? Yeah. He was coming back and not leaving. So, but you're right. Yeah, anybody who is not, anybody, let me put it this way. Anybody who goes up and votes for going to happen. They all know it too, which is why it makes it really difficult for this thing to get done. And um, if, if it gets done, it, it disarms part, part of uh, part of their platform, right? Which so. is why, yeah, which is why the, the problem serves them, as I was saying earlier. Yes, that's exactly right. As long as there's a border crisis. <laughs> that shit is that. It, yeah, it can scare the crap out of your base. It can make them mad. Right, it's they're they're drug dealers and rapists, and I, I guess there's some good people, but we all know who they are. They're Mexicans. These are drug dealers and rapists. You really want them in your in? 
Yeah. So we're gonna have we're gonna have the chant again at, at the rallies, are we, about building walls? Is that, is that see, the... now that's really fascinating, Andrew, because that's one of the things and I write about this too, is the, the build the wall chants went away in twenty twenty. Right? They were central in twenty sixteen. It was central. And then in twenty eighteen it became the caravans. Didn't work. Right? He loses the house. It's all Fox News, it's all caravans coming from Central America. There's miles of people coming and they're going to invade us by 2020 you don't have any build the wall champs what you do have is law and order which is dog whistling you know against blacks why is that because they their polling was showing that they could win hispanics if they stopped with the anti-hispanic stuff that's what happened that's a great question it's, it's very insightful that's exactly what happened so Will there be a build the wall chant? I don't know, man. It's going to be really fascinating to see. I, I think it will be largely poll driven. And that's what's so fascinating about Donald Trump is as much as I don't think he's all of that sophisticated in terms of the use of instruments to guide what he's doing politically, I have zero doubt in my mind, none, that the shift away from the build the wall chant from 2016 to 2020 was entirely poll driven and it was exactly the right thing to do. So then the, 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 so that makes the battle for 2024 more, more interesting because the, the, the push and pull for the Latino vote is going to be um, a different battlefield and that should be fascinating. <laughs> yes, that's, that's exactly right. I'm trying to get into the whys of all of that, but that's, that's exactly it is and, and Biden is staking his claim on a centrist message, knowing that Latinos on his left are going to get pissed about it. But they're right? still going to vote for him, right? They're not going to leave him. Come on. Come on, Mike. Don't, don't be so naive. You might be right. Probably are. I mean, where are they going to go, right? And we're going to have a record exactly. right now, but, you know, I mean, yeah, they're, they're not going to vote, vote for Donald Trump. They're not going to vote for Donald Trump. The question becomes one of turnout, right? And then how much damage they're going to do to this guy. Biden's numbers are not that good with Latinos. They never have been. That, those are the alarm bells I was raising on the Lincoln Project. I was like, guys, like I got to focus on the Republicans. The Democrats need to pick the shit up with the Latinos. Like, you know, and, and then I had this Hispanic summit with the Lincoln Project hosted with like, you need those U.S. and Naleo and like all the Latino organizations. A Republican convened that group. Because I was like, you guys need to get your shit together. I don't have time. I got to go focus on college-educated white Republican women. That's my job. Yep. I'll deliver the yep. Republicans, but you got to deliver Hispanics. And did they? No, they didn't bring them. They didn't. They lost ground with Hispanics. Thank God. That's why everyone says, did the Lincoln Project work? How how the hell did it not work? Right. You, the, the, sorry, the Democrats lose seven eight points with Hispanics. Republicans moved over. If the Democrats had been done the right thing and held their Democratic Hispanic base, Biden would have kicked his ass in Arizona. He would have kicked his ass yep. in Georgia. Yep. So, so that that's that. What you just outlined is exactly where the fight's going to be, and 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 the Republicans think that they can get more, and they they can. The Democrats think they can get them back, and they can. 
The key is going to be who does it better and who breaks out of their old 1980s, 1990s mindset and says, this is a unique demographic that's not based off of just this one issue this way or that way. It's much more complex. It's much more nuanced. And whoever invests the money is going to get it. But there's no doubt in my mind that Trump moved away from the build the wall champs, champs consciously, methodically, purposefully, and, 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 and won a bigger share as a result. It was smart. And you could see it, man. I mean, I was saying it. The, all the mm. public polls were showing it. You remember the alarm bells are going off? It's like, dudes, get your shit together, Biden. Get your campaigns ahead in the game. You're going to lose a wide share of the Hispanic vote. Ford is gone. I mean, you you know. Mm. And then he went down there. Remember he had the weird press conference and he starts playing Despacito on his iPhone? He went to the, like, <laughs> you remember oh that? That's horrible. That's horrible. It's like that that's yeah. what that was who the hell told him that was a good idea. But that that's the mindset where Democrats are at, right? Is it's all the symbolism because their whole power structure is and that's where they're in a conundrum. Is Biden right now is sitting in the White House going, shit, I'm looking at the polling numbers. And people want more border security. Once I say yep. more border security, I'm going to lose a lot of these Latino voices. That's what that 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 Texas Monthly or the uh, the, the Newsweek article is about. I'm going to lose Latinos in order to get border security done, but I got to get it done because I'm starting to lose back those uh, those college educated white Republican women. And there's more college educated Republican women than there are Hispanic voters, by the way. And you've heard me say it on here, whoever gets the right balance between college-educated white suburban women and blue-collar Hispanic non-college-educated non non-college men, those are the only two demographics that are moving in this country, and they're moving in opposite directions. So, so, so do you think that um, immigration reform will not feature much in the um, Republican primary? I think it's going to feature a lot. Okay. I, because it's going it's, it's to get more extreme and silly and stupid. You know, it's DeSantis going to be like, DeSantis is going to be like, I'm sending him to Martha's Vineyard and he'll get standing, you know, cheers. And then, you know. I, I just. Come on. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't see it. I, I don't see the path. I, I just don't. Especially with Fox getting. I mean, it's, he's, he's you, don't dead, Ron, dead, you don't want to be Ron DeSantis right now. He's gonna, he's yeah, he's just waiting. He's lame to slaughter. But um, okay, so but all that stuff then makes him look more extreme and crazy, right? So the, 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 the landscape, the landscape's really weird. It's really strange, Mike. I, don't, I really don't understand it. It's very weird. Right. The Democrats need to go on offense right now. They need to charge down the hill on their horses into the battlefield and just start swinging their swords. They just got to, they got to attack right now, attack these guys. And all you're hearing is, you know, I'm not hearing anything. I mean, bring it, but there needs to be video. There needs to be content. There needs to be, you know, Lincoln project style stuff. Go at them, attack, 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 get your base into a frenzy. 
don't the the, the, the what, what should be happening right now is Democrats should be taunting and pushing Trump into the DeSantis fight and not letting DeSantis out of it. Attack him, make him fight, stick him into the ring. Like, you know, two cats tie, tie their tails together and hose them down. Probably shouldn't say that, cat lovers. No. <laughs> but I mean, fight, make them fight, make them fight. That's, that's what Democrats should be doing. Don't, don't just sit back and like, to allow your enemy to destroy themselves. But the problem is DeSantis is dancing around the ring. DeSantis doesn't want it. You know, Trump is throwing some throwing some haymakers and he's landing a little bit, but DeSantis is like, I'm on a book tour. I haven't decided yet. I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. I mean, bullshit. I mean, Cardinal should gotta, be he's, out he's, hammer. He's, he's got a glass draw. It's one punch. He's all out. So we know that, right? So we're just waiting for that moment. And that, that won't happen to the, to, to the on a stage. Come on, we're, Think about what happens when if DeSantis gets a knockout punch and he's out, somebody pulls out some opposition research and finds something on DeSantis and something he did as a college professor with a co-ed or some shit. Could have won if I wanted to. I'm going to sit this one out. I'll run in four years. What happens to all the establishment Republicans that back DeSantis? 90% of them go back to Trump, but 10% don't. And Trump can't win without that 10%. It would be fascinating if, if DeSantis doesn't run or gets knocked out. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. Look, Donnie can't win a general, so it doesn't really matter. So, all right. All right, Mikey. Thanks for your time. Take care. Guys, we're going to wrap it up with that. I'm already eating almonds and drinking water, which is kind of rude, especially on a call-in show. I've loved doing it tonight. We went for an hour and a half. I hope you got a better understanding of the politics of immigration reform. It's tough, tough, tough to do. Uh, we will be talking about this a lot more because this issue is not only not going to go away, it's an issue that both sides are going to have to deal with with their respective bases because there's a lot of disagreement. The politics get thick. It's going to get nasty. We're already into the heat of this. And like I said, with trouble on the border, issues like what happened with these four Americans, God rest their souls, being you know killed by a cartel, you never, of course, want anything like that to happen. But that's going to start driving perceptions of what needs to be happening on the border. Until next week, thank you very much for being a part of Mic Drop. Drop me questions if you want to. Hit me up. Questions, uh, topics. Um, until then... We'll see you next week.